0: And sadder still, there are some who say, I'm a Christian, but completely ignore what the Bible says about their life. And so Christians and the Bible get this reputation, don't they? But the first part of this statement is false, isn't it? Many of us have read the Bible and loved the Bible for years and years and years, and we can say that even today, after reading it a lot, it is full of excitement that it is full of wonderful characters and events, that it is full of the story of God saving his people and bringing them to eternal life. We know the Bible is relevant, practical for our life today. But when we come to a passage like this, that does seem to be a list of do's and don'ts, how do we react? How are we meant to understand it? Has this accusation got some credit to it? Well, the key to a passage like this is what comes before it, the story so far. Whenever we see a command in the Bible, we need to look at what comes before it to see the reason why Paul or Jesus or whoever is asking us to do this or that. And if you remember back to last week, we saw the reason behind this passage. It was Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Have a look in your Bibles. It says, Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship. So in Romans chapters 1 to 11, Paul has been telling us his gospel, all about the mercies of God, the good news that although humanity was rebellious and only deserved his wrath and anger, God sent his son, Jesus, to die in our place for our sin. God has chosen to reveal his righteousness and give the gift of righteousness to those who believe in his promises. But now in this section of the book, from 12 onwards, Paul is spelling out how that gospel, how the mercies of God should affect our lives. How should we live life in light of that radical mercy God has shown us? He's showing us how to live our lives as a living sacrifice. What God's will is and how to do it. And last week we saw that this meant, meant, first of all, not thinking of ourselves more highly than we should. And flowing out of that, he encouraged us to use the different gifts God has given us to serve each other the body of Christ. And this week, Paul shows us what gospel-shaped life looks like. And it looks like gospel-shaped relationships. Paul gives us 23 do's and 6 don'ts. Not for us to blindly obey. No, he's showing us the gospel-shaped life in relation to other people. A life lived because of the mercy of God in Jesus' death. So first of all, 9 to 16, gospel-shaped relationships. Let's have a look. Verses 9 to 16 are this big list of proverb-like commands. There's lots of them, and they don't seem to be heaps connected. So I think an easy way for us to look at it is to group them into three relationships that I've given you on your outline. So we'll start broad and then we'll narrow in. First of all, gospel-shaped relationships towards anyone and everyone, towards fellow Christians, and towards God. So keep an eye in your Bible and on your outline, and we'll get through these verses. So first of all, Paul gives us gospel-shaped living towards anyone and everyone. He starts off by saying in verse 9, have a look, Love must be without hypocrisy. That is, love must be real, genuine, sincere, from your heart, not from a sense of obligation. But because you really care for the person that you are loving, you have their best interests in mind. You've got to mean it, Paul says. Love has no limits as well. Paul simply says, do sincere love. He doesn't put a limit on whom to love. He says, love anyone and everyone, and when you do it, do it like you mean it. Or actually, just mean it. And perhaps, what this love looks like is expressed in some of the other commands Paul gives us. So verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. He's saying, go through whatever someone else is going through, with them don't be a cold removed party when you sit with someone and sympathize with them be so invested to the point where their joy becomes your joy and their sorrow and sadness becomes your sorrow and sadness and i think that when you do sincerely love people that's true isn't it you share the sadnesses and the joys of those you love most Okay, some more examples of what this love looks like. Verse 16, Paul says, Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Now, This kind of goes with what we looked at last week, where Paul said not to think too highly of yourself. Don't be proud. Don't be a jerk. But here, he gives an antidote. The antidote to pride is associate with the humble. Those who are perhaps humble in character, who put others before themselves. Or those who are humble in circumstances, who are lowly or poor, or don't appear to be anyone special. The saying goes, you can't choose your family, but you can choose your friends. Choose humble friends, and they will help you to be humble too. I don't think this means that we can't spend any time whatsoever with anyone who we think is proud. But it is encouraging us to choose wisely who we invest in and who we let invest in us by spending time with people who are humble in the character sense or in the circumstances sense so that we can learn from them. They will help you to do what I think is another thing that Paul says, verse 16, He says, do not be wise in your own estimation. People will help you do that if you choose friends wisely. So, so far, the gospel-shaped life is humility. It's sincere love and it's investing in anyone that God gives us to do that. But what about towards our fellow Christians? Well, verse 10 onwards, sorry, verse 10 and some other verses show us. It says this, show Family affection to one another with brotherly love. Paul says, you know that love that you have for your family and the love that they have for you, your parents or your children or your brothers or sisters, the way that you protect each other and provide for each other and care for each other, or at least the way you know you should. Paul says, show that kind of love to these people. Show these people, your church family, the love that you would show your biological family. Because the truth is, they are more than that. They are in Christ with you together. Paul gives us a couple of ways to do this. End of verse 10, he says, Outdo one another in showing honour. Make it a competition. Lead the way. Take initiative In honouring your brothers and sisters in Christ. In our Aussie culture, we use jokes and we use sarcasm uh, to put down people and to alienate people. Honour is something we do not show naturally. And so I think we need to work hard at this one, figuring out how we can honour people rather than dishonour them. Another way we can show family affection is in verse 13. Share with the saints in their needs. He's literally saying, partner with the saints in their needs. That is, fellow Christians. Do it together. Bind yourself to a fellow Christian who's in need. Make their need your need. Figure it out with them, alongside them, helping them to do it. And I love the next bit. Have a look. It says, pursue hospitality. Pursue providing for each other. Chase it down and kill it like a lion hunting a deer or something else from a David Attenborough documentary. It's that strong a word. Pursue hospitality. And then finally in verse 16, he says, Be in agreement with one another. Strive to have the same mindset and direction. Do what you can to agree and be at peace with each other. This is gospel-shaped life and gospel-shaped love. Family love between fellow Christians, showing honor and caring for each other's needs. But what about towards God? Back in verse 9, Paul says, detest evil, cling to what is good. Let's think about that for a moment. What is evil? Evil is whatever dishonors God, Or works against him or is disobedient to him. The opposite of good. Whatever does harm. Detest and hate. Whatever fits into that category. And the biggest one is sin. What is good, on the other hand? Good is whatever honors and glorifies God. Whatever works for him and what is obedient to him. The opposite of evil. It's what truly benefits people. Cling to anything that fits in that category. Hold on to it with two hands and don't let it go. I picture the kid who wraps his arms around a parent's leg and won't let them leave the house for work in the morning or something like that. The gospel-shaped life is clinging to good for God's glory. And in verse 11, the gospel-shaped life towards God means not giving up. He says, do not lack diligence, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. And in verse 12, it means always relying on God. Rejoice in hope, he says, that's the hope of Jesus' return. Be patient in affliction or suffering now, and be persistent in prayer in the meantime. The gospel-shaped life towards God hating evil clinging to good it's not giving up and it's always relying on him through everything so that was a lot lots of quick short commands from paul but let's zoom out a bit why bother why bother going to this much effort why bother living this way towards god and others and each other when it can cost so much because of the mercies of God because God has been merciful to you through Jesus God has saved you and set you free from the slave master of sin now he is your master and this is his good and pleasing and perfect will when you are saved from drowning you don't jump back into raging water straight away do you you stay on dry land safe When you are saved from the master of sin, you don't jump back into it. You serve your new master with thankfulness. That's why this is gospel-shaped life that Paul is telling about us. The motivation is the gospel of Jesus, the mercy of God in saving us to be his people. Well now, in the rest of our passage, Paul changes gear and he shows us what gospel-shaped relationships means towards our enemies, with some of perhaps the most challenging words that have ever been written. Verse 17, do not repay anyone evil for evil. And verse 19, friends, do not avenge yourselves. When someone harms you, Paul says, do not harm them back. Is that not one of the craziest things you have ever heard? We get used to hearing those words, but stop and think for a moment. When someone hurts you, offends you, hits you, steals from you, criticizes you, what should your response be? Nothing. Do not repay. Do not, re- do not avenge. There's a difference here, by the way, between justice and revenge. If you find out someone is a murderer, please tell the police. If you witness or experience a crime, tell the truth plainly. If you find out that someone is an abuser of some kind, tell the authorities that God has given us who maintain peace and order and justice in our society. Justice and peace and protecting those who need it, Paul is not forbidding that. No, what he is forbidding here is personal retaliation. Taking justice into our own hands, striking back out of anger and hate. Paul tells us instead, in verse 19, leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, vengeance belongs to me, I will repay, says the Lord. This is what that Deuteronomy reading was talking about earlier. Paul refers to it here. He says God is the judge, God is the one who makes sure justice happens, and so you don't have to. Isn't it amazing to know that God cares how you are treated? God will repay those who mistreat his people. God vindicates his people. We don't know how or when, but we know that he will. And so he wants us not to retaliate, but instead to patiently trust in him to do what he knows best. But he wants us to do even more than that. Verse 20. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in doing so, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. If this passage wasn't already challenging enough, Paul finishes with the most challenging command. Don't just be passive when you are hurt. Actively do good for the person who has harmed you. Actively love and serve and show God's grace to them. It's God's job to avenge. Our job is to do verse 14, to bless and do not curse those who persecute us. And to do verse 17, to try and do what is honourable in everyone's eyes. And verse 18, if possible, on your part, live at peace with everyone. A man named Michael Hart wrote a book called The 100, where he ranked the 100 most influential people in all history. Who can guess where Jesus came in? Guesses from the audience. We've got number one, number two, and I heard seventh as well. He wasn't number one, and he wasn't number two. He was number three. Why? According to him, he says, because Christians who follow Jesus do not love their enemies as Jesus taught. He says this, Most Christians consider the injunction, that's a command, to love your enemy as, at most, an ideal which might be realized in some perfect world, but not, but one which is not a reasonable guide to conduct in the actual world that we live in. We do not normally practice, do not expect others to practice it, and do not teach our children to practice it. Jesus' most distinctive teaching, therefore, remains an intriguing but basically untried suggestion. Now, I know that there are faithful Christians in this room and throughout history who have loved their enemies. And I would like them to meet Michael Hart. But the sad thing is that for many, it is true. Many do not love their enemies as Jesus has taught us. Yet this is part of the gospel-shaped life that Paul calls us to in response to his mercy to us. Why? Why did Paul write this? Why should we do this? Well, again, it's because of the mercies of God. How does God treat his enemies? In Deuteronomy, we saw that God takes vengeance on those who are opposed to him. But we have to remember that we were his enemies. Romans 5, have a look on your outline. It says this, For while we were still helpless, at the appointed moment Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we paid evil to God, he repaid us in love. When we were sinners, God's enemies, he decided to do what? Send Jesus to die for us. To give us the forgiveness and friendship with God through faith in him that we could never achieve and that we never deserved. We are only to treat our enemies in the same way that God has treated us, his enemies. That's why this is the Gospel shapes life. The motivation is the gospel, the mercies of God that we have received. So how do we respond to this passage? 29 do's and 6 don'ts. What do we do with a passage like this? If you're like me, when I come to a passage like this, it can be so inspiring. I say, yes, all of those things are good things and I want to do them all. But it can also be battering. As I look down the list and say, I cannot do all of those. So how should we respond? First of all, we should repent and pray. The gospel-shaped life is all-encompassing. It involves all areas of our life and all of our effort. And we are unable to do that. We are unable to give all of our effort all the time. We are weak and frail and we stumble often. We need to confess our sin, turn away from it and ask God for the forgiveness that he has so wonderfully provided us in Jesus. We need to cry out to God in prayer and ask him to give us strength to live this gospel-shaped life. Prayer for his word and spirit to work in us to renew our minds and transform our actions. And that's the kind of prayer that I think God can and wants to answer. So first response, repent and pray. Secondly, we need to live the gospel-shaped life with God's help. We need to let the gospel so renew our minds, so shape our life that we put each of these commands into practice. Now when I say that, I hear myself saying, that's pretty hard, 29 commands? How am I going to get through that to-do list? Well, in a moment, I want to give us just a few minutes to read through that passage again and mark the ones that you particularly struggle with, the ones that make you squirm, the ones that you know you need to work on. And then one at a time, let's spend a week on just one, aiming to grow in that area, meditating each day on that one command, what it involves, why God would ask you to do it. For example, do I struggle to be persistent in prayer? Find a week where you can block out the same time daily to pray or reflect on what prayer is and why God would ask you to do it. Or do I struggle to bless those who persecute me? Spend a week praying and looking for those opportunities to do good to people who don't like you. These are the ones that I marked as I went through uh, this list. These are the ones that I struggle with most. Outdo one another in showing honour. Do not lack diligence. Be persistent in prayer. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Try to do what is honourable in everyone's eyes. If possible, on your part, live at peace with everyone. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. The list could be bigger, but I had to focus it a little bit. Those are the ones that over the next month, I want to work on. So will you pray for me and will you join me in working on the gospel-shaped life together? But To finish off, before we have some time to reflect, we need to be reminded. Where does motivation and energy to live the gospel-shaped life come from? The gospel. Chapter 12, verse 1, the mercies of God. The gospel-shaped life. Motivation comes from his mercy to us in sending Jesus. Let's not be people who blindly obey the commands of the Bible or who, worse, still ignore them. Let's allow the gospel to renew our minds and transform our lives so that we live gospel-shaped relationships with God and with others and with even our enemies. Well, let's spend a few moments looking over those, that passage again, those verses, those 29 commands, go through the passage again and mark the ones that you, want to particu- that you particularly struggle with and that you want to grow in with God's help. I'll give you a few moments.